0: Sean Allard bought a cool business, a pair of ice cream shops. Now, before you dismiss that as the type of listing you'd quickly scroll past on Biz Buy Sell, open your mind a bit, which is exactly what Sean himself did. One of the few types of businesses he did not want to buy was food and beverage. And yet here he sits, six months later, owner of a popular local ice cream business. Despite being small, 275,000 in SDE, and in the food and beverage space, you'll hear me too getting excited by the upside potential in Sean's business. High local brand awareness, a loyal following, 2,000 reviews with an average rating of 4.9 stars, small footprint, and 25 to 30% margins, and seemingly huge potential to expand into markets across the US. It's very early days, of course. Sean has only owned the business for a month, but I still see his story as a good reminder to not be overly prescriptive in your search and to evaluate every business from its own fundamentals. Please enjoy this interview with Sean Allard, owner of Novel. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab, Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursom, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. Sean Allard, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's
1: uh yeah. it's an op- it's it's a great opportunity. I'm I'm really excited to be here and I've been
0: listening to this podcast for quite some time now, so it's it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome, Sean. Uh, thanks for saying so. It couldn't have been that long that you were listening because as as I understand from our pre-call, it it was as recently as February of this year that you hadn't yet discovered Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition. In March, you discover it. And by August, so just a month ago, you bought your first business. Only a very few of my guests have moved that fast, that decisively from discovering ETA to actually closing on a business. So we're going to hear about it all, but let's start with some backstory on you, please, Sean. What was life looking like before your discovery of acquisition entrepreneurship in March?
1: Yeah. So,
0: like you said, things started for me
1: back in February, but up until that point, or, or still to this point, I've been in dental consulting for the last four ish years. Graduated ASU in 2019 and, and been in Arizona working uh, remotely uh, in the consulting space since then. And like you mentioned, uh, back in February, I Really started venturing out into a, a little bit more into the the entrepreneurial space and decided I either wanted to start something uh, from scratch uh, that that really was my only idea of of being an entrepreneur at that point. Um, like you said, I, I didn't really have any idea that this opportunity or these opportunities existed uh, for for myself. So back in February, uh, really discovered this whole world and. Uh, yeah. Like like you said, we're here. Now we're here.
0: Now, from what I recall, you had dabbled in a lot when, when you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you had an entrepreneurial itch and you kind of dabbled in a lot of things that were zero zero to one, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Give us just a picture of that, because I, I think that's going to be a theme we return to later. Yeah. So over the last two years, I would say, so yeah.
1: Uh, I, I would say around two years, I I dabbled in a few things, both in the online and, uh, you know, service space, uh, in-person service space, uh, everything from rental cars to digital design to uh, consulting myself um, on, on different service businesses. Uh, and I just realized over time that I wasn't the best at going from zero to one. I would have these great ideas uh, and over the first, you know, few weeks, I'd be super excited about it. Uh, I'd get maybe a little bit of traction, specifically in the rental car space. Uh, you know, it got good traction early on, and after things sort of died down, or that initial excitement died down in the first couple weeks, and and it wasn't moving in the direction that I sort of wanted it to, I tended to either call it quits completely or just move my attention somewhere else to the next shiny thing to the next idea I had. So I realized over a two-year span that all the projects I was working on, uh, you know, one, maybe I wasn't passionate about them, but I I realized I just wasn't that zero to one type of, of person. And so that's when I started looking into the opportunity of buying a business uh, but I wasn't familiar with that process whatsoever and I didn't like I said, I didn't really realize that was was an option. Yeah uh,
0: but yeah cool. and you your this entrepreneurial itch you had where did that come from altogether? Was it just like you you're a few years into your working life post graduating from college? And, and realizing that you don't want to work for, for somebody else, or were you kind of a, a lemonade stand type kid who was <laughs> destined to be an entrepreneur or what? Yeah, I would say it was destined, but I always had that itch uh, early on.
1: Uh, like I said, I, I, I always did various projects. Um, I always had that, that initial energy to go out and start something from scratch. So, you know, even early on. Uh, reselling things online, uh, doing various projects for, um, you know, for, for friends and and family and in college and such. Uh, but in the, yeah, so I, that, that Mm -hmm. itch has always sort of of, a hustler. Always. It's it's sort of always been there. And
0: then in, yeah, it's, it's always been there. How do you discover buying a business as you said you're like so many of us to the extent that you were aware of it at all you just assumed it was something that kind of rich people did or private equity do da, people do or right. you know company a buys company b but the idea that a lone entrepreneur acquisition entrepreneur might go out there and buy a business was pretty foreign to you how do you discover what do you discover so in february i
1: really sat down um it was actually a family conversation, uh, which is funny. We we were, you know, having a good dinner uh, as a family, and we were just talking shop about a variety of different projects we were all working on, and uh, and and so I, you know, sort of brought up the idea of potentially buying a business, uh, and and that really sparked the initial push to to go out and start investigating the opportunity and doing some research. And I initially came across it on Twitter like many of, like many of the the folks you have on on the podcast so initially found that this was an option on twitter uh, quickly bought buy then build read that book in i think two days and this yeah this whole world opened up to me very quickly and i i really just
0: doubled down from there yeah well welcome to the club now just curious when you mentioned this at your family dinner are your family members like, dude, what are you talking about? Or do they, is it well-received or what? Because so many of my, of us in this world, f- because we're so immersed in it, we forget that the idea that somebody would go out and buy a business, uh, we forget our own uh, ignorance of, of that possibility. And so we, we forget that it sounds like this completely alien uh, concept to to people that you might mention it to in passing. So, how did your your family react to this crazy notion by Sean?
1: Yeah, um, so I've like I said, I've always had those those crazy ideas. So I've always presented those to my family. So I didn't. I I don't think it was a surprise that I was venturing into something, uh, you know, crazy again. But mm-hmm. we were all on the same page that we didn't. We just didn't think it was possible uh, for for us. Uh, and so. Yeah, I don't think it was foreign or they didn't think it was a crazy idea. They just didn't they their question was can you actually do that? Like, do you, do you have the money to do so? Do you have how how do you actually go about this process? Was really the only question that was presented to me or or that we sort of hashed out was, you know, if if this is the the route you'd like to go, how how can you even do that? <laughs> is is really just what came up. Uh, I don't think it was ever a a question whether or not they believed in it uh they just thought whether or not you
0: you know how do you actually go about the process yeah and you were like funny you should mention it at which yeah. point you flash walker Dybel's book yeah yeah exactly there, there's a whole here's, book showing so, you how here's to do what it.
1: i learned in in 2 days and uh <laughs> i i i hope you can trust that i have the knowledge after
0: these last 2 days <laughs> of my education so, so Uh, Now differentiate uh, for us between your enthusiasm around this entrepreneurial project of buying a business versus the previous two years of of projects that you'd done that had, had fizzled or you had been frustrated by them and they hadn't really materialized. I approached it like I approached all of the other projects in the first month or two
1: by Really giving it all my energy outside of my nine to five. So before, you know, before and after work, that's that's essentially all I did. And and I relate back to any other project because I I approached it the same way. In outside of my day to day, I usually had one or two things I would give all my attention to. Uh, and then, like I said, it it fizzled out over time. But this one sort of naturally stuck. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the. One, the case studies uh, that that this is possible, and two, the early sort of momentum I had gave me that feedback uh, that that this could be something uh, that would work for me. I mm-hmm. simply put. So I approached it very similarly, but that that early feedback and and it just sort of stuck. Uh, it it became more enjoyable than the other projects. It didn't feel like a hustle or a grind to me. It, it it was going through that early outreach and, and those early conversations to actually learn about how to, you know, even review a, a SIM, for example, were, were exciting. Like those things, those yeah. things were really fun to me. So, uh, yeah. Early excitement, case studies, and and just the, the early feedback loop that I was receiving from it was was kind of pulling me in or drawing me in a little bit more.
0: Well, it it feels like see, see how this lands that you were feel you were feeling more progress. You you felt like there was, yeah, a progress toward your goal here, whereas the other projects there'd be a flurry of activity as you got something going, maybe a little bit of traction, and then you'd hit a point where there felt like there was no progress right. anymore. And, right. and that kind of was a turnoff. Whereas this one, happily, there just kind of continued to ever be incremental progress. Yeah. Does, is think, that right? Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think the more... It, I, I go back to, to outreach because the more outreach I did, the more conversations I had, the more sims I was able to review... The more opportunities seem to be coming my way. So it it was, it was simply more reps, more reward. So mm-hmm. I, the more time I put in, the more, the more opportunities, like I said, were, were coming my way. So mm-hmm. in previous projects, that that sort of immediate response or progress uh, doesn't always land, uh, no matter yeah. how many
0: reps you put in. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More Staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global Staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. And the case studies that you're referring to, what what case studies, where are you seeing these? Yeah, so
1: places like Twitter, SearchFunder, other online communities... Uh, I got connected early on with a few people locally in Arizona that uh, I had conversations with. We sat down two or three times uh, through the early month or two uh, of this uh, of this journey for me, and yeah, the 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 case studies were on a variety of platforms. Okay, you know anything from online to to some local communities that that we had here in Arizona. So I. I jumped right into to those communities and started setting meetings and conversations up uh, to kind of solidify the the fact that I was on on the right path uh, by mm-hmm. uh, by hearing more and more
0: successful stories, mm-hmm. and which made you feel like this is real, this is a path, this is something people right. before me have done and done so and done successfully. Right. Right. Well, I was asking that one somewhat selfishly because I feel like Acquiring Minds essentially is a podcast devoted to case studies. So I wanted to I wanted to get inside the head yeah. of, uh, of an early listener. Yeah, right. and and <laughs> I you know
1: I should mention that obviously uh, podcasts have been a huge one, especially yours. Uh, you know, ninety nine percent of my time, you know, in the early stages of this was, you know, was was listening to how others went through this process, um, and how they, how they identify opportunities, how they review opportunities. And, and that early, uh, those early case studies definitely came from, from this podcast. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, I owe you a lot, uh, for, for how fast <laughs> I moved on this, uh, because well, the knowledge I was able to, to take
0: in, in, you know, 60 days is, is pretty, pretty remarkable. Well, that's fantastic, Sean. And thank you, uh, for that compliment. I, 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 didn't mean to, I wasn't fishing for a compliment. Oh, no. for that, I, but that, <laughs> you you definitely um, deserve it. But, so it's but, my apologies for not mentioning it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, but I, I do think just early on in, in deciding to do this podcast and in my own entrepreneurial journey, I, I just seeing, the, I, I was just addicted to the stories of others uh who had had success. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of listening to people's entrepreneurial stories. Not necessarily in acquisition entrepreneurship, just in kind of zero to 1 entrepreneurship. Right. Um but um it just it's a format that I'm a big big believer in, so it was nice to hear it's nice to hear it validated by you. Um okay. So, segueing now into your search. So, we're in March. You're you've you've had a couple of in-person meetings with local searchers in Arizona. Uh, and you've already started talking about your outreach a little bit, but give us a picture of what your process looked like. Yeah. So I
1: kept it really simple and, you know, I, I targeted three different arenas, really the only three arenas you can, uh, one being off market, uh, broker outreach, and then online listings. So I did all three simultaneously. I didn't have any fancy setups or anything of that nature. Uh, I, didn't have an industry focus so I tried to get in contact with as many brokers as possible and get as many opportunities my way early on so that I could get uh, a little bit more focused as fast as possible uh, because being in consulting, I mean obviously I was specific in dentistry, but outside of that space I wasn't familiar with you know a- any particular industry. I had not worked in an industry long enough for me to feel comfortable. Uh, And go out and buy that specific business, right? So I my my search was very broad Uh, to begin with. It wasn't even uh, geographically bound to to Arizona. I left things wide open. So my my approach was reach the masses uh, of brokers and uh, search as many listings in your purchase price as possible, uh, and and go from there. So as as I reviewed more deals. And got more specific. Uh, obviously, I started with brokers, went to, or started with brokers and online listings, and then went over to, to off market when I got more excited about certain opportunities uh, and started venturing into Arizona specifically. And, uh, but to begin with, it was, it was a flood of, of making as many contacts and connections as possible. And over time, over, I would say, I, I say time, but over the, The first few weeks, I would say, I I moved quickly in trying to get a little bit more
0: specific on an industry. And when you say off market, you, I don't, I don't think you mean proprietary outreach, or do you? Or do you mean talking to to brokers? Oh, okay. And so, what kind of, how were you doing proprietary outreach? So that was locally in Arizona. I would go
1: directly to a business that I was familiar with that I could see myself purchasing. One example was a. High-end luxury auto shop. Uh, very mm-hmm. random business. But I mm-hmm. had been familiar with them for the past four or five years. And I knew they were doing well. Uh, I know the owner had other ventures he was working on. So uh, I actually went, went to a few of their events and connected with the seller. We had a few conversations and uh, sat down about potentially buying that business. And I approached it the same way with others. Uh, I, I approached... Very similar businesses in the auto space, specifically, uh, just because that's that's an industry I I could see myself venturing into early on. Uh, what I also didn't understand the financials very well, uh, so we can touch on that. But
0: uh, and the, what do you and what what do you mean, Sean? They, they were making a lot more money than an SBA loan could handle. They they were bigger businesses than an SBA loan could handle. Or uh,
1: not as no, I would say the opposite. Uh, not oh. making much money at all. Oh, Uh, and the day-to-day business is is very stressful um, at the scale that I was able to purchase at. So, you know, seller is very, very involved. Seller is typically a mechanic of some sort or a specialist or, or uh, yeah. And, and, and and so not having that experience uh, quickly moved me away from, from that space. Uh, But somewhere over the 2.5 to $3 million mark, they do make money. Uh, but where Ooh. I was uh, willing and able to purchase, it didn't make sense financially. But, anyways, the the seller direct to seller approach uh, was was limited. It happened three or four, maybe five times maximum uh, before I just kept getting better opportunities uh, from brokers, mm-hmm. and I doubled down on that side of things uh, after yeah after a few direct to seller deals just didn't pan out the way. I expected them to, uh, or the financials. I, I didn't understand the financials as much as, as I, I felt I needed to. So that having that broker early on helped, uh, with my lack of knowledge in certain areas, sort Mm -hmm. of had that support system versus trying to, you know, you, you are sort of the broker in, in a direct seller, uh, relationship. So having. Having a uh, having a partner in a way <laughs> helped
0: helped early on, in the form of a broker, exactly, yeah. And so when you say the opportunities just started kind of getting better and better, not the proprietary opportunities, but the ones coming to you, I think from brokers, yeah, was that because you had been successfully kind of cultivating relationships with brokers, and they they started to send you stuff that wasn't already listed online, sort of thing. A mix.
1: I mean, I would I wouldn't say I was getting anything proprietary or or anything that, you know, I, I wasn't getting first looks on on many mm-hmm. deals, but uh just the the sheer volume of deals that were coming my way from the number of conversations I was having in the in the first few weeks provided those those early opportunities. And mm-hmm. the the more and more touch points I had with these brokers, the more comfortable they felt. In sending me those those better uh, opportunities, and so early on, right, you you do have to develop that uh, that relationship with many brokers. But it, it really just came down to the amount of conversations I I was having uh, that that led to to those early on opportunities.
0: And Sean, you're uh, you're younger than the average searcher. Mm-hmm. You're twenty six, right? I am. Yep. Yeah, so four years out of school, and we know that searchers, types of people listening to this podcast, are often often have a hard time getting the ear of a broker brokers are famously try to filter out tire kickers and so on. So you know there, there's a lot of talk around how to, how to cultivate relationships with brokers so that they don't think that you're just going to be another tire kicker or otherwise a time waster for them. mm-hmm. And this is this is where age would work against you, uh, because if you're somebody who's 45, the broker says to themselves, "Well, this person probably has, you know, first of all, they have experience, or you know, they got 20 years of experience on you at least, and they probably have a little capital." So, did you find that you had to overcome? age? It, uh, I'm sure they didn't tell you to your face, but did, did you sense that that was, uh, was playing a role in your conversations?
1: I would say 50-50. Half of half the conversations I had were, you know, there, there was skepticism in, in my ability to get a deal done. There was skepticism with my approach uh, because I didn't know exactly what I wanted, <laughs> right? Yeah. A, a lot of the yeah. early conversations were, uh, you know, were around you know, just generally sending me deals and, and taking up a broker's time just to review deals isn't, uh, you know, it it doesn't lend well. Uh, so yeah, I would say half the time I I had a good response. Uh, but I, my, my frequent follow-up and my frequent, uh, yeah, I would say my, my frequent follow-up is, is what sort of set me apart from, from many Mm -hmm. of the you know, other searchers maybe uh, that they had encountered. And so we, I I kept in touch with, you know, the hundred or so brokers I had on a weekly basis. So if I wasn't getting deals from them, I was still reaching out. Uh, Even though they had maybe not felt comfortable in those early on, in those conversations early on, I, you know, I, I made it known that I was very serious just by consistently touching base with them, uh, saying, Hey, you know, got anything on your desk today, got anything I can review. Uh, yeah. And just being top of mind for them, uh, versus, you know, just reaching out and, and waiting for them to send me something. Uh, I just, I, I really pushed hard on every contact I, I had made and made sure that any opportunity that fell in my scope was, yep. was being sent my way, no matter what it was, and that I would be extremely responsive. Uh, I would ask questions about the specific deal if I had any. So I, I, no matter if the deal was
0: strong or not, uh, I was always in contact with them. Well, that's great, Sean. And, and I'm not sure anything that you said there isn't something that the audience hasn't already heard. We, we know cultivating relationships with brokers, um, being responsive, being proactive, uh, being communicative, giving them feedback uh, and just doing everything you can in your communi- communication style to demonstrate that you're serious right. is kind of the name of the game. But I think still, even people who are guests on the pod and who have bought a business, maybe you know, maybe don't do that as well as they could. And it sounds like you did that really, really well. So um, kudos. And probably a, a big part of the reason why uh, you got something under contract so quickly. <laughs> so uh, let's – oh, before before you tell us about the business that yep. you bought, what were your – parameters of what your size wise and otherwise so anything between one and 1.5 million
1: i was hoping to fall in the two to 350 sde range uh i know that's a little bit of a range but i was comfortable with that number uh and and yeah so that that was my initial criteria uh no no specific industry uh my parameters were wide open uh geographically like i said but one point five, one to one point five, and two to three fifty ish in SDE. So was let's my focus. let's,
0: du- let's double click on that SDE number, Sean. As you know from listening to the pod and and reading the literature and following SMB Twitter, oh, that yeah. is would be considered buying small. Why why were you comfortable, or why did you decide on that as your range? So
1: I didn't venture into all of the other ETA models. Initially, I thought that if you were going to buy a business, uh, obviously, I, I understood that you can bring on partners and things of that nature. But the traditional route, uh, traditional search route, or, or, you know, bringing on investors and, and raising capital and such um, was something I was open to. But given that I had a mix of personal and family capital that I could bring into a deal uh, I felt a little bit more comfortable putting the putting the business on my back and taking full responsibility of it and two I hit like like my last two years uh, I I felt that I wanted to see how well I could do something on my own before I, raise any sort of capital, um, bring on other partners. And and I wanted to feel confident in the in, in my abilities to, you know, run and manage a business. Uh, but yeah, it was more around wanting to own 100% of this business and feel confident in my abilities to do so uh, early on. And, and I didn't necessarily need to hit a certain income, uh, to be okay, jumping into, uh, into the ETA space. Uh, you know, I, I was okay. I, I went into this being okay, making the exact same, if not a little bit less than I was in my day-to-day, uh, role as a consultant. So,
0: well, let me follow that up with a few observations. First, you know, we we I think that you're just a great counterpoint because when this buy small, don't buy small, the right threshold is X. I ask about it a lot. It's I, I think it's a very important consideration. But um, as with all things, I don't think that there is a is a single prescription that is the right answer, and that it's going to and and that there's you know that we need to be dogmatic about this. Um, you are a 26 year old bachelor, I assume, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, have very different uh, financial responsibilities versus a 45-year-old woman with three kids. Uh, And so, you you know, the the salary that you need to replace, the mouths that you have to feed, et cetera, et cetera, the mortgage that you may or may not have, et cetera, et cetera, changes the profile of what you, you know, what you need to buy for yourself. So, uh, so I don't mean to suggest at all that what you did that your kind of smaller size was imprudent it's but it is it is different because because I think that your profile is a little different. you're a little younger than than my typical guest. right. This is great um sean and and so if you would and so just to be absolutely clear um, you your range of two hundred to three fifty, you kind of arrived at that number by backing into what you could afford. And what you could afford, you decided with your own personal capital savings, was mm-hmm. basically a million to a million and a half. And so what does that mean? Well, typically if they trade at three or four X, that mean, that's gonna end up being two to three hundred and fifty SDE sort exactly. of thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yep. And and that would cover the salary your your own personal salary requirements. Can I ask two um, even more personal financial questions? Can you yeah. can you I, I think I we can Absolutely. napkin math this, but your the cash that you had available to spend uh so is it is the math basically 10 percent of a million to 1.5 somewhere exactly. in that range yep okay. right around
1: 150 was okay. was my mental cap mm-hmm. I, you know, could go up to maybe 175 but i was comfortable going up to 150.
0: Mm-hmm. great and what size salary did you need to replace
1: uh i was comfortable replacing 100 grand I was making okay. about one to one ten, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my, in my day to day. So I was, I was comfortable making just that and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'll, we'll go into debt service and things of that nature, but, uh, you know, we'll all, I'll end up making a little bit less than that, but mm-hmm. I, again, that's, that's something I was comfortable with. So buying yeah. smaller, uh, you know, there, there are downsides to that financially, but you know, to, to own. To own my own thing was the goal, and if that meant I had to take a pay cut or make virtually the same with ten times the stress, or uh, yeah, ten times the stress, then
0: yeah, I was I was willing to go that route. Sure, seems like a good trade to me. I mean, if you're gonna build a, an ice cream empire, man. I, you know, taking a little bit of hit on your salary seems like a good trade. And yes, I did say ice cream empire. I don't think we have uh, shared with the audience what you bought. So there's a little teaser. (laughs) All right. So, so tell us how you found the business that you did. Yeah. So connected with a broker. uh, This was probably the,
1: the one I had, had been connecting with the most. Uh, He was sending me deals every, you know, couple uh, a week at this point. So we were, we were just having a, a conversation about a few deals that we were reviewing together. Two or three deals uh at this point and i wasn't super excited about those and and he had just connected with a seller uh via call in the last two weeks or so and and this seller wasn't necessarily ready to sell he he was he was eager to see if there was a possibility for it he had started over the last couple months he had he had been you know connecting with him with the broker to see if there was a possibility uh, of putting, uh, of putting the business up for sale. So they were in very, very early talks to list the business, uh, but it wasn't on the market or anything. And, and so, like I said, I wasn't really excited about the two or three that we were currently reviewing. He had quickly mentioned on a call, Hey, I just spoke to a seller. Uh, would you, would you want to Hear more about this business. I know you're not super interested in the food and beverage space, uh, which I wasn't. That was actually one of the only uh, criteria that I that I wasn't willing to, or one of the only industries I wasn't willing to venture in. Uh, more so because of the horror stories I've I've heard. Uh, you know, whether it's podcasts uh, or you know any of the of the spaces I was I was researching in. But uh, yeah, I I quickly reviewed it and actually got excited about it uh not only on the financial side of it but the the brand itself excited me the most and and so yeah connected with the seller in the you know in the next 48
0: hours ish and we went from there and so tell us all about it the business so the business is a
1: two location ice cream shop in arizona everything is made and distributed in Arizona. So, like I said, two shops. The business is doing 1.3. We're going to do close to 1.4 by the end of this year. And SDE is falling right around 275.
0: Uh, I wow, that's the exact midpoint of your range. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, per, yeah, exactly. So, fall falls right around 275. And, uh, yeah, very simple business, uh, two location ice cream shop. You can, you know, you can assume there, there's not a ton of complexity there, but a 20 person team have about 10 at each location, uh, management in place at each location, extremely helpful. Um, seller was only really putting in about 10 to 15 real hours in the business. Uh, at this point he had been working on this project for close to six years now. He founded it. He did. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sole owner of the business. And so, like I said, he was only working about 10 to 15 real hours in the business. And that was, you know, everything from flavor creation to sometimes jumping into the shop and hanging out with employees and, you know, spending some time uh, with the team. Now, tell us a little bit more about
0: the product of this ice cream shop, these ice cream shops, the two shops, because I think my my first reaction was it seems like it would be brutally competitive yeah. because I mean, you've got the the giants, the household names, Ben and Jerry's, Baskin Robbins. But then i I mean, you do see lots of also independent ice cream shops, but they they it seems like the sort of business that would be. That would be hard to have a moat around. That would be uh, really tight margins because it's going to be in a high rent area. Typically, with a lot of foot traffic. There, you know, labor is going to be hard. You're going to be hiring. You know, I mean, not necessarily just high school kids, but I, I remember that was like a favorite place for people in my high school to work was, you know, scooping ice cream sort of thing. Right. So, so what? Uh, what did you see? And and then you you all already had this bias against food and beverage you told yourself that this was the industry that one of the few industries you would not go into Mm -hmm. so what overcame all of that and and you also said that it wasn't just the financials that you liked there was more there that you liked. something special there tell us more about it yeah so two things quickly stood out one is the product itself
1: wasn't just ice cream so although we do have scoops right just like any other ice cream business the core product was what we call a dough melt, dough essentially melt. a donut sandwich uh, filled with ice cream and that core product is the differentiator in, you know, in, in this space for us, uh, we, you know, like I said, we, we do serve everything, uh, else, but that, that is what was the biggest pull for customers. And the quality of the product, as I dug more into the logistics and the back end of the business, uh, was extremely impressive. This everything was handmade. Uh, everything is delivered first thing every single morning, seven days a week. Uh, nothing, uh, you know, w- was shy of of quality. And, and so, from a branding perspective and a quality of product perspective. This sort of over over the last five years, it sort of built its local moat in its ability to serve customers extremely fast and deliver a consistently quality um, product. Uh, yeah, so that mm-hmm. that's really what what pulled me in more than the financial upside of the business. Obviously, margins were sitting around twenty five to thirty uh, percent, which is significantly higher than uh, you know the average. And in the food and beverage space, uh, ice cream is a little bit more higher margin, typically, but um, not usually in, in the 25 to 30% range. And uh, yeah, I, I, I saw the I saw the loyalty that customers had locally in Arizona. And that more than anything else was the, the initial pull for me.
0: And when you say loyalty, how are you gauging loyalty reviews, online reviews or what? Yeah. So return customer rate and reviews were
1: the two Mm -hmm. initial markers I was looking at. Uh, it is actually the highest rated ice cream shop in the country. Our Phoenix location is. Wow. Wait, by, by what's, what do you mean? By what standard? By, by sheer number and. Being at a four point nine, so we have close to two thousand reviews at our Phoenix shop. Uh, Google uh, reviews. Google reviews. Yeah, sorry. Wow. We, yeah. So, highest in, in the country, uh, from what I've seen. Don't hold me to that, but I, I, <laughs> I actually do think that that number is is true. And uh, yeah, so Google reviews and uh, return customer rate is you know. 85,
0: 90% at this point. Uh, and uh, yeah. And was the seller doing something savvy or kind of digital marketing forward to accumulate so many reviews? Uh, was he proactive about that or was it just people taking their own initiative to leave pos- happy, positive reviews? Yeah. That's what, it, that's what was very
1: impressive about this. There was no digital marketing spend or attention there was no review funnel, if you will. Yeah, exactly. after a customer, uh, you know, came into the shops, uh, everything was completely organic. So his core focus, his only focus, was on the product and customer service. So those two things uh, drove that 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 number of reviews uh, and and the volume at which re- customers, you know, returned to see us. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think that's, that's the, one of the most impressive pieces of this is that when you focus on the product itself, you can in a way not focus on the other things that you typically, you know, hear uh, as being the most important drivers of, of growth and you, t- you, you tend to, to have a, a better result when that, that pr- quality of product is, is the main focus.
0: Yeah. Well, certainly there's a cliche about product people. Now I'm coming kind of from a tech background, right. but I think it probably is, is, is true among any kind of product person, where they are craftspeople. They just they just the, the quality of the product, you know realizing, manifesting their vision, is is an art to them, and is something that they're deeply and in, personally invested in. And all the other stuff—the marketing, the sales, the asking for reviews—is is icky and beneath them. Or, or they just are. Maybe I'm being too judgmental. Maybe they just don't enjoy it. They just rather be thinking about their product, and so they neglect that stuff, for lack of a better word. I'm reminded of a uh, My First Million uh, recent episode where um, Sean Puri talks about like buying digital businesses, like a Mm -hmm. SaaS product, an existing SaaS product or something. And he's like, you know, one of the key things I look for is that programmer product person who just cared about, you know, it was all product, 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 but never Mm -hmm. touched Facebook marketing or Google ads or optimize their landing page, just like all of that stuff. It was, they were just about product because then, you know, that's where I, that's the value that I can add exactly and and there's and there's just if, if they if, if the product has been refined and perfected with care and love uh, and it just hasn't hasn't been properly marketed of course there's in theory a huge unlock that's to be had there exactly so uh, I don't know if I'm over applying an, an analogies from from tech products to this, but it sure feels analogous yeah no absolutely and
1: and just to touch yeah. on that it That's, that's the beauty of being able to buy something at this stage and with so much upside, you know, there, if I were to start this from scratch, my core focus for five or six years would obviously need to be the product. And now I get to Mm. come into this business at a point where it, like you said, it has untapped potential with the the product being refined, the logistics on the back end being perfected. And now I can come in and and double down on the things that were lacking and will now, you know, unleash a whole nother beast, if you will. uh, In (laughs) Unleash the beast, John. uh, Yeah. In uh in Arizona. So
0: well, so let's talk about this beast. You there were two things that you said you liked about it. Well, I want to ask about both of them. Yeah. First is the upside. So what 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 do you perceive as the potential upside here, the potential opportunity? Obviously, when you when you look at
1: retail or, or food and beverage, the the typical blueprint to growth is more simply more locations uh, or optimizing the current locations you have uh so i think it's a mix of both right now we're in a, we're in a good place with the two shops we after about two and a half years at, at each shop you you tend to find your core customer in that city or, or in that market and logistics start ironing themselves out things become a lot simpler and there's not a lot of day-to-day that goes on in those shops so we're we're at a good place with the two shops we have now so my my true focus over the next six months is opening one to two more shops i ideally want to to have two uh in that six month period but uh my my blueprint to you know over the next 12 months is to replicate what we have logistically in the two shops uh, in Arizona, do two more in Arizona and then potentially venture out into the surrounding states. And then obviously double, doubling down on marketing uh, and getting this this product uh, you know in the eyes and ears of, uh, of as many people as possible. Right now it's it's grown purely on word of mouth, uh, which is fantastic. so we'll continue to, to push for that. But if we can add that wing, of, uh, you know, of external marketing to this, that's that's what's going to set the next two shops up for success.
0: And that, but that's near term. Mm -hmm. The home run grand slam case here is that you've got some franchisable concept or maybe not franchisable, maybe you own all the stores, but something that could go national. I mean, in your fantasies, that's, there's the potential for that here. Right. That is that is the five to,
1: to seven year goal I would mm-hmm. prefer to keep everything in house so I you know I look to you know I look to in and out and Dutch bros and things of uh, you know in organizations of of that nature as as inspiration for for what I would like to to build over the next few years but there are there are a ton of opportunities or, or a ton of different Ways we could approach growth, Uh, obviously franchising being a a very popular option. Uh, To be completely honest with you, I haven't put that five to seven year blueprint in place. I have a high level, you know, mental frame for what I'd like it to look like uh, uh, from a pure location standpoint. But ideally, everything is in-house and we just continue to scale locations. Um, while focusing on keeping the 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 quality of the product uh, consistent throughout the country, um, and potentially venturing out into retail and um, you know and events and catering
0: and and other opportunities like that, <laughs> I, I'm I'm just I'm laughing because you're just saying all the all of the things about being involved in food and beverage that probably would have sent you to the hills screaming. Uh, just three months ago, uh, yeah. but, but and, now and they, they seem like great opportunities. Yeah.
1: It's ought to be in an industry that I initially wrote off uh, and seeing how exciting it is uh, on the back end. But, you know, all the horror stories you typically hear uh, are sort of true uh, in a way now that you pulled the curtain back. W- what and are
0: you, what are those horror stories, Sean?
1: A typical horror story would just be around staff and, and managing you know, managing a, a large team, uh, and the logistics of food and beverage are typically a nightmare. Uh, if you manage them yourself and, and you're not making everything, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I would say around team and, and logistics, uh, and they, they are complex, you know, especially in the ice cream business, you're dealing with a younger team. Uh, so a lot of emotions and, and you know, going from zero to 20 team members is, is a, uh, you know, is a challenge, but just like any other business that has its challenges, they're just, they're just different, uh, in every business, simply put, right. It's, uh, it's team and logistics versus operations and sales. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. And speaking of these, operational and logistical challenges or, or, or people challenges, are you now full-time in the business? What, 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 yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. So still working my day to day.
1: Still have I your am, W2. I still have my W2 and, and I would say there's, I, I am working full-time in the business, but it is early on and, and late at night and and obviously on the weekends. So my goal over the next 3 to 4 months is to slowly transition into into novel full time. But the focus right now is to you know, keep keep the business at at a place or not really cause any turmoil in the business and position myself Financially, uh, so that when I do transition, I'm prepared, uh, you know, personally, and and that nothing has significantly changed in the business early on from my, you know, pure lack of knowledge around the food and beverage space. So I I sort of want to test the waters and and see if things break in the first 90 days uh, before I make that full jump. Uh, I typically, This is kind of counter my typical behavior uh, because I I tend to jump full speed into things and uh, get very, you know, narrow focused. So I'm trying to be a little bit more cognizant of the fact that things, there are risks involved in this. And so to have that cushion initially and then to transition uh, into the business full time over the next, you know, ninety days is uh is something I'm I'm a little bit more comfortable
0: with. Good. Yeah. That's uh, that's sounds prudent. Saving some capital right. in your own personal for your own personal bankroll and then and also in the meantime kind of putting put I assume putting whatever money cash flow is coming out of the business back into it.
1: Exactly. So, so taking of those sh-
0: shoring up your own bank account and the business's bank account it, before exactly. you dive in. Exactly.
1: Nice. Taking no capital out of the business right now, solely living on my W-2 and investing you know every dollar back into the business to, to make sure that one, one, things run smoothly and we have some capital for growth when I do go full-time.
0: Lingering on the seller here, given what you said about the potential here, and I mean, it just seems like a really attractive business and he's the founder, why did he want to sell? Two things. One, he... Had a young, you know, daughter uh, recently. So
1: he had a daughter recently. And and so he, after about five years of being in this business, uh, you know, in, in the first three, being very, very involved, the team was very small up until about two and a half, three years ago. Um, He, it got to a point where he wanted to spend more time with family. And then two, like I realized I wasn't the best at going from zero to one he realized he wasn't the best at going from one to two. He mm. was the zero to one guy. He liked the initial few years of building a brand, bringing it up to a certain point, and sort of riding the wave uh, and, and not necessarily feeling the the urge to grow. Uh, so he knew it had legs, and he, and he knew the business had, you know so much potential uh, but he didn't feel he had the energy the time or the willpower to take it to the next level and felt like it was the right time to put it in the hands of somebody who was willing to to bring it to that next level also for the sake of of the team uh, both managers are you know very invested in the brand as well and they've been with the company for three years now each and uh you know they're, they're also wanting to take things to the next level and they want to be there, um, along the way. And, and so the, the cool, cool realization that he had is, is that he, not only was he not benefiting the brand, he wasn't benefiting the team and the management that was in place, uh, by not growing the business, given yeah. their want and, and desire
0: to, to do so. Yeah. Yeah recognized that he was holding them back, holding their ambition, career ambitions back a little bit exactly. And he was he was young too. He so obviously had a daughter so he's not retiring at age. Yeah. He was how old? Yeah, mid 30s. Uh 35, mid-30s. 36. And uh, I I let it slip. What were what did you buy the business for? What 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 did the deal terms look like? Yeah. So I bought the
1: business for 1.25. Uh he initially listed it at around 1.4. Uh, SDE, like I said, it was about 275. Um, and I put a 90% SBA loan on it. So I put 10% down. My 10% injection sat around
0: 125. The 275 SDE to 1.25 purchase price. That's a pretty, a pretty full multiple. That's about a 4X. Yep. And you, yeah. were, you got comfortable with that, obviously.
1: It was... I wouldn't say I was comfortable with it. Um, there was definitely some uh, some skepticism in whether or not I was making the right decision at buying an ice cream business at four X. But <laughs> with I, I, again, I think my urge and and desire to get a deal done uh, was was outweighing the potential, I guess, downside of overpaying for an ice cream business. Um, I relied heavy, on, heavily on what he had built and, and my, you know, this, this is going to sound ridiculous, but my gut, uh, you know, gave me uh, a sense that I was making the right decision based on brand and what this business was spitting out and the potential it had. Even though I may be overpaying it, overpaying for the business initially, uh, you know the the return in five, seven, ten years would uh, would sort of outweigh that initial yeah. sort of quote unquote downside, if you will.
0: Sean, you've now referred to the brand. It's called Novel, by the mm-hmm. way, for anyone who wants to to Google it. Novel in Phoenix and you've referred to the brand a number of times, you are a self-described brand freak. Brand is not not something that we talk about a lot because often a kind of a a blue-collar services business might, you know, brand might not be the the most important aspect of that business. But in a consumer-facing business with a consumer consumable product, you know, ice cream shop brands are, you you know, Ben & Jerry's is one of the probably top 100 or 200 brands in in the state and in America, right? So anyway, talk to us more about the strength of this brand and why that appealed to you so much. So when you look at the ice cream business, most
1: brands are, you know, very, very traditional. They've, you know, they've, they're legacy brands. They've been around for, you know, 50 plus years. And so from a branding standpoint, I, I I am just typically very attracted to yeah to to those household names, whether that's a CPG brand, uh, a retail space, or a retail shop, uh, clothing, whatever whatever it may be. Um, I I tend to be attracted to a brand that knows itself very well, knows its customer, and uh, you know has been very consistent uh, over over a a long period of time. And so I felt like this, this, this brand, if you will, novel knew its customer and had developed a sort of cult like following, uh, locally. And so the, the more I visited the shop, the more I talked to team members and things of that nature, I, I realized how, uh, you know, how well known it had become. And so that's, That's sort of the leg I was standing on is, you know, given that it's so well known locally, how, how can we continue to bring that same sort of energy or that same sort of, um, you know, following or that attractiveness to other markets, but Yeah. yeah, from, from a branding standpoint, there, there aren't a lot of local small businesses that have that are, that have built a a brand, if you will. They they are known yeah. as that local shop or that mom and pop, uh, you know, ice cream shop or, or coffee shop. But they haven't really built a you know a, a a national
0: brand, if you will. The and and so is it one of these things where everybody in Phoenix knows novel or knows the dough melt or not everybody just those who have discovered it like how well known is it to the the man or woman on the street in phoenix yeah i mean from the conversations that i've had
1: um whether it's simply by wearing a t-shirt or um you know talking to folks about kind of prying uh, at what folks uh you know like to to have for dessert locally right whether it's just a general question i have or uh, Wanting to learn more about their uh, where they where they shop, uh, it is it is extremely well known in Arizona. But the surprising thing is how many of our daily customers have never heard of us uh, or are coming to visit us for the first time, uh, based on you know again word of mouth being being told uh, that that they should come see us, but. It is a very well-known brand in in Arizona. There are a handful of states that know about Novel as well, so we've been reached out to a handful of times already uh, since I've taken over about coming into uh, you know different markets and whether or not we are franchising or. Really. Yeah. So you know even within. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a great sign, but uh, yeah, the brand is known i wouldn't say it's a you know national by any means but from uh from a local perspective i think we we've done a really good job in arizona as being that staple um dessert spot uh you know for for this market so very well known but it's very surprising to me uh at you know at the scale that we're operating how many people have never heard of us
0: yeah one of the things that you'd commented to me Sean about your criteria for business to buy is that something that you did want as opposed to something that you were filtering out was to wanted to buy something that you were excited about calculation being if I'm gonna step out of my w2 which may be stimulating or you enjoy enough but let's let's you're not probably passionate about it. And if, if I just step into something, buy a business where I'm similarly kind of meh about it, I don't want to do that. I want to be excited about this this business that I'm going to buy. Um, let's call it X factor. And that's not, that is, that is kind of talked about in our world, but maybe not as much as it should be. We often say things like, you got to imagine yourself in the seat. You got to imagine what it's going to, the day-to-day is going to be like in this business. And, you know, can you imagine yourself doing the work and so on? Um, so, so maybe that's a, another kind of a flavor of this same question. But elaborate on how you were thinking about this topic of of your interest and passion for the thing you bought.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. You're exactly right. I mean, my my idea uh, was, you know, why why would I leave something stable uh, and you know, fairly enjoyable, you know, there, I don't dislike my w two by any means, Uh, I actually enjoy the work we do. And it's it's fairly rewarding. And, and so, you know, I'm not in a position where I necessarily need to jump ship. And so if I were to move in this direction, or if I were to take the risk, uh, you know, of a personal guarantee and things of that nature, I want to jump into a business that i actually enjoy uh you know let's say 50 percent of the time at least you know most businesses day-to-day like we all know are are not extremely exciting but for the most part i i i wanted to wanted to make sure that i i was willing to put 10 20 30 years um or you know build this brand for the remainder of my life if if you know realistically and yeah. So, so I, I, I think that was one criteria, <laughs> one, one major criteria mentally was, uh, am I going to get, it? am I excited about this business? Am I willing to put the time necessary to bring this to the next level? Um, or is this, you know, just another, you know, quote unquote boring business mm. uh, that I'm not necessarily going to wake up and get fired about, fired up about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, although it, may not look financially rewarding on paper i think the yeah the the excitement of a brand uh like novel or you know the the ice cream business uh if if that's what uh if you like ice cream enough i guess right (laughs) uh you know i i would i was hoping that this would yeah this would would get me out of bed Uh, in the morning. Right. And not, not be another job um, that I have to, you know, just put, put the time in uh, and and see grow. I can actually, yeah, I can actually get excited about what we're building uh, and, and see, you
0: know, sort of, yeah, yeah. I can get excited. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, Great product. I mean, who doesn't like ice cream? It's a fun product. It's a pleasure product. It's a kid, a product that the kids love, a family product, but also adults. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's just got such universal appeal. And it it it's it's a great frankly, <laughs> a lot of my guests joke about how, you know, the boring business they bought while we all in this ecosystem get excited about these businesses, you know, the second they tell people what they do at a cocktail party, you know, the person's person turns to the next person to ask, you know, to, to total disinterest. Right. But if you own an ice cream shop and one that's well known in your city, you know, that that's probably pretty interesting to people and pretty fun to talk about.
1: The stability of those boring businesses is absolutely, uh, you know, that absolutely appealing. There's, there's no doubt that that was the direction I wanted to go. Uh, but once I, once I saw, uh, what the, the, the other opportunities out there, uh, in more, you know, unique industries or unique opportunities, uh, my mind started to go in that direction versus yeah, the, the sort of boring,
0: yeah, sort of boring businesses. Well in the way that happened it actually reminds me of a point that AJ Wasserstein made on the episode i aired thursday about how if you are an acquisition entrepreneur and you want to get into franchising so you want to buy a portfolio of stores in a franchise brand with the goal of then accumulating more over time and building a big portfolio how do you evaluate what brand to buy into what system franchise system to join and He had this great framework where, so so it it was like a list of ten questions, but there there was kind of this process uh, underneath it all where you should you should hide from yourself the franchise brand or even the category, and then just and then just evaluate the business uh, against these kind of nine or ten criteria, and only at the and then and and. So come to a conclusion about, does it meet all of these criteria in the way that you want to want, want it to? And then only at the end of that process, unmask what the category or the brand actually is that you've been objectively uh, analyzing. The idea being that we bring so much bias to brands and to um, industries like you did with food and beverage that sometimes the, they might actually be great opportunities and opportunities that you uh, would, would benefit, w- would be a great fit for you personally, not just all the financial characteristics, but others as right. well. And so it's sometimes kind of hiding, hiding what the, the business is or the industry that it operates in from yourself and analyzing it in a very objective kind of clinical way first, to, to, and you may find that there, there's an amazing opportunity there. And then when you unmask it to yourself, you're like, oh, this, oh, who, who knew that an ice cream shop actually checked all these boxes? That's, exactly. So anyway. E- exactly. Um, yeah. Well, and, and part of it is also just the the willingness to remain open-minded. So whether or not you do this formal process that I just described about the, the masking and the unmasking, mm-hmm. just staying open as you, I think, were when... You had already said to yourself, no food and beverage, but this broker that you developed a relationship with said, well, I got this, I might have this ice cream shop business. And you were you know, open-minded enough to say, well, I'll take a look at it, even though it, you know, it's in food and beverage, which I yeah. said I wouldn't get into. So right. I think that's also a, uh, yeah, a that's good a key... quality to cultivate.
1: Yeah. That's a key point is staying open-minded in this process. I think things take a lot longer because you know, there, there is a lot of upside. Uh, to being very specific and focused on what you're looking to buy but you can also miss out on some some pretty you know amazing opportunities so that that is what i would say opened the this world up to me so quickly is that i you know i was willing to review just about anything uh one because i just wanted to get more reps and i didn't I, I didn't have that financial um or, or business background uh, you know, prior. So I, I wanted to better understand many, many industries and see what the back end of these um of these companies look like so I could identify things that um I may not have even recognized uh was a part of being in these businesses, whether that's manufacturing, yeah. uh you know, or retail, or whatever it may be. So, yeah, keep keeping it keeping an open mind was a big factor in in my
0: you know search to close speed. Couple more questions for you, Sean. Then we'll wrap. I want to return now to expansion and just the the math of it. If you're already getting inbound from people interested in franchising this concept, uh, right. I think it, <laughs> people listening to this might. Uh, when they hear the economics uh, might reach out to you. Yeah. So you want to open two more locations in the near term. Are you going to finance those? Or, I mean, ha- how much does it cost to open a, a location? I yeah. guess is the question. Yeah. So I would like to, given that I have a, you know,
1: a pretty hefty loan uh, on this business and it's only been a month, I would like to not put more debt on this business uh, unless I really, really have to. And that we may hit a, a number, uh, you know, in the next two to three years where I, I will need to pull some, uh, or put some debt on the business if, if we're growing rapidly. But for now, the footprint of these build outs and of these stores is small enough to where we can basically bootstrap, uh, all of our, all of our stores over the next two to three years. So, Each store costs around 25 to 35 grand to open if we sit in that five to 700 square foot range. If we go up to a thousand, obviously you're, you know, you're sort of almost doubling that. But we operate out of five to 700 square feet in both of our current locations and we want to keep that blueprint uh, going forward. So both shops, both shops that we have uh, in place now cost around, that ballpark to open. And uh, we could open a shop in 60 to 90 days if we identify the right spot. So it's just a matter of having that, that initial cash and, you know, replicating what we currently have in in the two shops. So we would like to keep everything, uh, you know, in house, we don't want to bring on more debt at this time.
0: Okay. But let, let, let's just unpack the economics here because I, I think that they're I, – I was, I was chewing on this before our conversation here, Sean. <laughs> I, I think that they're quite compelling. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any experience in, in retail, so maybe this is not unusual, but just kind of first principles looking at looking at kind of return on invested capital. So you said it costs 25 to 35 to open a new location. Let's be very conservative and say it's an even 50. So super conservative, cost 50,000 to open a new location, okay? Right. And you, you're doing 1.2 million across your two existing locations. So let's say each location basically does 600, 600 in revenue, 600 in sales a year. And the margins are 25 to 30%. So let's say, again, being conservative, 25%. So 25% of 600 is $150,000 in profit cash flow from a single location. So a $50,000 investment in a new location in theory if it performs like your other two locations do, mm-hmm. will generate $150,000 in the first year in cash. Right. So that's a yeah, that's a well, that's a 300% return mm-hmm. uh, unlevered un- <laughs> unlevered yeah, un- return. Exactly. Exactly. I mean that's that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. I, again, I I might be I'm naive here, so I I might be overlooking some really obvious stuff, but wow. In the first year you're not going to make 150. It's going sure. to to take about
1: 8 to 10 months to really really see the momentum that you're currently seeing in these two shops. Okay. Maybe shorter now that we've, you know, have some credibility and and people know of us, but you know, our yeah. second shop took probably six to eight months to to really get going so I w- I would expect in year two to make you know 150 on that investment first year you know let's say 90 to 100 so you know still fantastic return. still yeah but uh yeah there's there's a little bit of a ramp up time and and you know operating out of five to seven hundred square feet definitely helps us everything is window service um nobody comes into the shops so everything
0: Oh. Uh, oh, these are really
1: yeah, that's yeah, these are, really small then. These are really small. And and so the build out is is insignificant, is an insignificant cost uh to, to the whole operation. And we haven't touched on rent or anything of that nature, which is which is a big piece of, of most retail uh, or food and beverage locations. Yeah. And you know, we'll take our Phoenix shop for example. We're paying about five hundred bucks a month and in rent, which is half of a day nothing. sales and yeah, 45% yeah, of a day of a Friday night for us. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we don't have that stress or, or that, you know, that, that hand around our neck with, uh, with rent.
0: And I wonder why other ice cream shops haven't followed a similar format where they just, they don't offer a place. For the customer, they just offer window service because that sure seems like a great rent hack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's basically a, a stationary food truck. Exactly.
1: And that's a good question. I, I actually, I don't know the answer to that. I yeah, I would advise anybody getting into the dessert space, whether it's donuts or whether it's even coffee, uh, you know, to, to test this model. And, and, and see if it is effective for you because, you know, the operations are, are, are much simpler. Uh, you know, having, having a very small footprint, we don't have a lot of complexity in the shops. Things move really, really fast. We can see hundreds of customers per night. We, we do on a Friday and Saturday night. We can, you know, we're doing three or four, sometimes 500 bucks an hour, uh, by, wow. you know, you know, by operating out of these small spaces. So and. Yeah, I, I I don't know why nobody has has really tried this model. Uh, food trucks do really really well if they have a great product, and and you know they obviously operate out of, you know, probably no more than a hundred square feet. Yeah. But I I just think it's it's untraditional. Most mm-hmm. you know, most don't think it's possible. They think it's too small to operate uh, out of. It's too you know, it's too crammed. I, yeah, it's, it's hard to say why, but it would be interesting to see more people test this model and see if if they can, you know, put up the same numbers.
0: Well, you'll be testing it here yourself uh, in the coming months with locations (laughs) three and four. Anything I didn't ask you, Sean, that you want to make sure is said? I don't think so. But one thing I, I always like to, you
1: know, come back to is, Is that this process doesn't have to take a long time? If you know, we we already touched on being open minded with this, but I don't think this process needs to take as much time as it tends to take for most. Um, obviously, I took a different route here buying an extremely small business, I will, you know, make around a hundred grand, so it's not as appealing to most. Um, but the opportunity for you to own your own business is there if you're willing to kind of eat some dirt for <laughs> 12 to 24 months, uh, on a business with, with some potential. Uh, so, you know, if, if you really just double down and and keep an open mind to, you know, maybe going into an industry that you're not familiar with, uh, that you don't feel comfortable with, uh, you know, or, or
0: already wrote off like I did in the food and beverage space, uh, you know, you could, you could find something pretty special. Certainly sounds like you have Sean and neat, a really neat business. And it seems like this upside, uh, could be something spectacular. Uh, I, I like that you're more cautious in your optimism than I am. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about stamping out as many as, as, you can, but I, you're, you're. Oh, that's the uh, goal.
1: Don't, don't get me wrong. I, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, Great. I want
0: to open as many as we possibly can, but,
1: uh. Yeah. One, one step at a time. It's, it's funny. I'll, I'll hit on that really quick, but as uh you know, when you, when you initially jump into a business, this is one realization uh, that I've had in the last couple of weeks is I, I like to throw things at the wall very quickly and see if they work, see if, you know, things break and, and how we can improve that. So, uh, you know, given, given my last four years in the consulting space, that's how we've operated. Uh, you know, we, We have a meeting one day and we try it the next day and if it breaks we don't do it again the in the third day so things just move at a pace that you know many aren't comfortable or used to and so i took that into into this business and uh, i quickly got a realization from you know younger employees and and you know just from other mentors and such that it's probably not the best idea to come into a you know well-functioning business and try to start throwing things at the wall and, and, you know, yeah, I I would say not scaring the team in a way, but, you know, kind of making the team a little uneasy about what's going on. They're already a bit uneasy about the transition. And now you're, you know, trying to, trying to change all of, all of these things. Uh, but that's right. my go-to in, in most cases. So, um, I got a reality check and, you know, already, already had some, some good conversations about slowing down a bit and taking care of what's working, taking care of the core team in the first 30 to 60 days, and then and then starting to focus on um, how can we improve current operations versus coming in day one and saying, you know,
0: these are the 20 things we need to fix tomorrow. That's such an important point. You said 30, waiting 30 to 60 days, and I, I'm countering with, well, maybe more like three to six months. Probably um, a lot longer. <laughs> uh, but again, given my impatience, Uh,
1: I, you know, I, I realistically will, will hold off for, you know, a few more months on, on really making major changes in the shops if they, if they really need that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's humbling to, to be slowed down a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, I think one way to get comfortable with that is that let's not forget that buying a business is this incredible shortcut. So just by buying the business, you've, you' know you've bought the founders you know product, you, know, the blood, sweat and tears he poured into coming up with this product and the six years of you know building a name for it and, and getting people in the neighborhood to know it and developing this loyal customer base and the 2000 reviews on, on Google reviews, all of that in one fell swoop. So if you take a breather for you know three to six months as you know, during your transition to learn the business, uh, you're hardly, you're hard, hardly behind. Exactly. You're still way, 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 way ahead of things. Such, such um, a good Which point. of course, which of course is the whole magic of, of ETA. Yeah, so. such a good point.
1: And, you know, m- many of us probably are in the camp of wanting to move as fast as possible. That's, that's just yeah. a, a very, you know, a, a typical mindset or behavior of, uh, of, of our space. And so it's humbling that I have to be okay with moving a, a little bit slower in, you know, maybe even 12 months. Right. Um, we, yeah we don't know, but, and, and being okay, or actually realizing that the business is not suffering because you're not moving forward as fast as you feel like you should be. Uh, and you know, the, the beauty of buying, as you mentioned, is that if you st- you don't do anything to this business right now, and you just maintain it for six months. It, it's going to run. Here, you're you're, you're, yeah. you're still going to do well, uh, but yeah, it's it's a totally different you know mindset from from zero to one to
0: one to two, right? Mm. Well put, Sean. How can how do you like people to reach out if they have questions for you? Um, yeah. Good. Wow. Good question. Um, I would say Twitter is probably the
1: the best place. Shoot me a DM. Okay. Uh, you can email me. You can. Yeah, I would say those are probably the best okay. two places. Uh, I'm on Search right. Funder, I'm on a variety of different communities. Um, yeah, I host some events in Arizona too. So if you're local, reach out to me. I'll always uh, send you that information. But yeah. Twitter and and email, and I can drop both of those
0: uh, over to you. Yep. We'll have those in the notes. Appreciate that. Sean Allard, thanks for coming on. Congrats on a really neat acquisition. Uh, We'll definitely have you back and and hear how things are a year from now. I appreciate this. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks, Sean.